Sorry, assholes, your quiet day at the office is about to get severely fucked up. Welcome back to the After Action Review. You know me, I'm Nick Guy, the world's most okayest Green Beret. And as per usual, we bring in more than okay guests. This week, we have career Special Forces soldier Sean Lenane with us. You guys know him on Twitter. He's all over the place with his hot takes and his opinions. But what you guys don't know is that beyond a stellar SF career... He's helped craft some very serious and very important doctrine in terms of survival. We're going to get into that later. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. So, Sean, let's take it. Let's just kick it right off the right off the bat. Tell us how you how you got into special forces. Um, well, I joined the army because uh, I needed a place to go and. Uh, uh, joined for the uh, college money, stayed for the adventure because I decided I liked it and it was the one place in the world where I actually fit in. Uh, let's see here. I did five years in the 82nd Infantry and uh, after that, nothing Special Forces ever threw at me, phased me. Um, the 82nd, yeah, it, it's not the, the Ranger Regiment, but I'll tell you that place made a man out of me. Um, okay. Then I went to Special Forces, uh, Engineer Sergeant, uh, served in Okinawa, first of the first. Um, and that for me was like going home because I was raised in Southeast Asia. Uh, I speak Thai, and we did a lot of work in Thailand, Philippines, Malaya, uh, Hong Kong, um, Korea, of course, uh, all over Okinawa, all over the islands in the Pacific, um, Indonesia. And... Um, in any case, uh, did my time there, came back to Bragg for my mandatory SWIG tour, uh, got lucky. They assigned me to SEER, uh, Survival Escape Resistance Evasion. And I served as an evasion survival instructor uh, for three years there. And for me, um, a lot of that stuff I'd seen before uh, growing up in Southeast Asia as a Boy Scout and everything. So it was, um, it was doubled down. It was really good, um, and uh, I'll, more on that later. Uh, went to third group after that, and uh, because I wanted to stay in North Carolina, my parents had retired and they were there, so I stayed. And you know, once you get into third group, you're stuck. I think I was there for uh, at least six years um, until finally I uh, managed to finagle my way over to uh, first of the tenth in Stuttgart, and. Uh, Really, I finished up there. Um, by that time, I was pretty long in the tooth. I think I was 45 years old, 46 years old. Uh, by the time uh, I rotated back to Bragg and retired out of SWIC, um, my, my last uh, assignment at SWIC, I was uh, managing air operations. That was an education. That was a lot of fun. Um, and, then, uh, and then I retired. And uh, what I did after retirement, I'll go into that later if you like, but it's directly influenced by my career. And um, SEER itself was a, a great door opener for me. So, so what are your questions now? <laughs> so any, any SF guy, any, any CA, PSYOPs, air crew, they're going to they're, they're tell you SEER school is the most fun you're, you never want to have again. Um, <laughs> and that's, and that's, that's typically the rule of thumb with the exception being guys that really and truly enjoy survival. And, and some of those guys like yourself, uh, Swick, you know, the, the seer cadre guys that go on to, you know, write FMs and things like that. 
those guys, you know, I, I'm not going to go in because I know a lot of those courses are classified and things like that in terms of follow-on SEER training. But for the majority of us, it's really good training. It's a lot of fun. You never want to do it again. But when you take a... <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm not going to go into details on the podcast, but, you know, when it comes to at least the survival portion, those are some serious skills. Like, if you're like me, I don't hide the fact I, I didn't grow up rough and tumble. I was a prep school kid. I don't know if you know that. I wow. might, Yeah, I was a prep school kid, private college. I was the last person you'd think to, to go into SF. Um, I had some time in the woods, but not serious time in the woods. So things like... Oh, how to build a snare. Some things that like kids grow up with, a lot of kids in SF grow up with, no idea. So it's that's why it's a great school. And the SEER instructors, probably the most professional instructors in the entire DOD, to be honest with you. Because they take they take idiots like myself and they and they get them to a level that, you know, they won't make a fool of themselves once once they get to a team in terms of living and and thriving in austere environments. Well, the Special Warfare Center itself is a great institution, and they have a very intensive instructor training uh, course uh, program. And even after you graduate the ITC, then you, you're back on your committee, wherever you're at, and those guys will murder board you to death to make sure you know how to present the training and you're presenting it properly. And uh, it's, uh, it's remarkable, uh, the degree of training uh, that they give you, and I'll give you a, a brief example. I know we're, you know, time is a constraint. Uh, they tell you if you ever put out any information that is flawed or mistaken, you must immediately correct that. And you have to make a big deal about saying, look, what I said was wrong. This is right. Because people will learn the way it's first taught to them, law of primacy. And, uh, so, you know, you have to backpedal real fast and, uh, you have to be straight with your audience. Um, so that that's part of it. Another thing is with training aids. If you pull out some sort of, you know, Rube Goldberg device, here's, you know, the Norden bomb site, blah, 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 blah. When you're done talking about it and presenting it and showing whatever it does, put it away. Don't leave it out there in front because as you continue giving the class, everybody's looking at the thing. <laughs> you know, stuff like this. It, it, and you become a very good instructor over the course of time. But it wasn't just platform. Of course, we'd take them to the woods. And, um, of course, uh, you, you touched on that uh, developing doctrine. While I was there, I was fortunate. I was part of the team that uh, rewrote the survival manual. And uh, the previous one was a reprint of stuff going back to the 60s, at least, if not earlier. It might have even had World War II-era stuff in it. And we'd become aware that uh, some of the anecdotal stuff in there was simply that. It wasn't backstopped with dates and places, so for all we knew, it was war stories. Uh, some of the techniques were practically old wives' tale type of stuff. And so we went through it by the numbers, and every technique we would... Let's test it. Let's see, does it work? And, um, you, you know, is, is it practical? Because there's some things you can do. Uh, everybody knows about the uh, the solar still yeah. that you're supposed to make in the desert with a bit of plastic and, you know, you dig a hole and you put a can, a, a can, a sea ration can at the bottom and uh, uh, some tubing and it's supposed to absorb water and drip into there. Yeah. You need to make about 500 of those things to get any amount of water. And the stuff, it, it's it's like really strong, dark green, nasty tasting tea. Um, you're not going to survive long on, on that technique. And if you're trying to evade, anybody's going to see, you know, this giant ground air signal. So that's a, sort of a flawed technique. Putting plastic bags over plants, that works. That's incredibly successful. Um, again, though, the, the water tastes kind of nasty, but not as bad as the solar still. Um, another one was uh, rabbit starvation. Have you ever heard about that? Yeah, and oh, Yes, I have, because the, the rabbit is so lean that you could even if, even if you filled your belly full of it, you would still starve to death because of the total lack of fat. 
Right. So we asked the question, what, did they ever find like a log cabin out in the middle of the wilderness with all these like rabbit carcasses <laughs> all over the place and a dude that starved to death? No. Eat the rabbit. <laughs> There's got to be enough fat in the brain of the rabbit anyway. At the very least. Um, <laughs> <laughs> see, you know what? That It's actually funny because... When I went through the, you know, the instructors mentioned it, but it was, it, again, it was just kind of an anecdote. And it, it, yeah. and they and they told us, they're like, honestly, we don't know because we don't know of anybody that's just gone into a survival situation and eaten solely rabbit. Nothing um, but rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> you can use the rabbit as bait to get something bigger. <laughs> See, now you're thinking. That's unconventional thinking right there. Yeah. But... You know, they, they threw it out there as an anecdote, and the instructors, because like I said, they're, they're probably hands-on the best instructors in the DOD, and, uh, you know, as a Green Beret, as a Green Beret, you're, and when you boil the job down, you're a teacher. That's what you do. You go into, you go into a, a denied area, and you link up with an indigenous force, and you teach them. Um, and it's funny, because you kind of learn the tricks and and tips along the way when you had great instructors and you kind of pull those things over. But yeah, hands down, phenomenal instructors. But yes, they'd mentioned that. I had, and I'm going to be honest with you, Sean, I myself have kind of carried that over. And that's kind of always been like a funny little anecdote when I'm like camping with my girlfriend or friends. I say, hey, you better eat something more than rabbit because of that. And then they, you know, obviously they start asking, how do you, you know, how do you catch a rabbit? I go, well, you got to build a snare. Yeah. Then, then you got to, then he got to karate chop it, and then for best for best uh, eating, what we found, and maybe this was just my class, or I don't know if this is a schoolhouse thing. They gave you the uh, the oral rehydration salts, the ORS, yeah. which was kind of just a mix of like salt and sugar. Rub that yeah. on the meat, throw it over the fire, like crisped up on the skin. That's good eating. I, me personally, after I hadn't eaten in a few days, I felt very full. I didn't know if that uh, rabbit starvation was a thing because after about five or six days of not eating, that rabbit definitely hit the spot. <laughs> um, we, we were eating roadkill when I went through. It was uh, late November, so you know the whole place is a giant, uh, a giant uh, refrigerator. And of course, you know you got the fall chase, so there's all kinds of good eating on the roads. I just have to cut off the part that the automobile destroyed. Um, and, um, yeah. Uh, another thing I learned when we were moving through our uh, survival corridors in Carthage, there, uh, uh, Pineland, um, they'd already harvested the cornfields. But the farmer boys type guys on our team said, let's go to the corners. Because the harvester cannot make a 90 degree turn. It, it turns in a, you know, circular way like a lawnmower you know and uh so in the corners we found ears and ears and ears of corn but it was this seed corn the stuff was so hard no matter how you cook it boil it try to pop it we tried to you know, fry it in the grease of this raccoon that we picked up off the road everything you're crunching down on this stuff and breaking teeth but hey it's it better than nothing you could swallow it i guess we, we, uh, we were grinding it up and eating it um, as much as possible. I mean, even boiling it, you still just got rocks out of it. But, I mean, uh, we we were living pretty large in our survival corridor uh, between uh, uh, part of a young deer and uh, a raccoon and, uh, and the seed corn. Um, and that was something I learned. Go to the corners of the field see, after it's been harvested. I, that. I, I didn't know that. I did not have any farm boys on my lane. Um, I, I was the only SF candidate on my uh, evasion lane and I just had a bunch of CA guys who had never, I, I, they'd never set foot in the woods at night and they were terrified on all four of these dudes were just <laughs> grabbing on to my uniform. Like, cause we didn't honestly during our evasion lane, we had, there was no loom. So they were just oh. grabbing onto my ACUs and they would not let go. They didn't oh my lord! <laughs> they, they didn't understand the, the concept of just listening. You can hear me walking through the woods, just follow yeah. the noise. But yeah, roadkill was a big thing. We found we found some deer. We found a uh, found a doe that had gotten hit. On, we were eating good that night. But yeah, yeah. seriously, some crazy. Like I said, do I want to go back and eat roadkill? No. 
Am I glad that I learned how to determine, you know, which meat you can eat and what you can't on the roadkill? Absolutely, I am. Yeah. So, hands down. So, you went through as an instructor on, on, on the... Uh, I, I, we're not going to go into details. You went through... The guys who are listening who know, they'll know. You went through as an instructor on both sides of the house in Sears School. And we'll leave That's it at right. that. Okay. But back but back kind of to that to that manual. Because um, it is so important. And it is kind of something... You know, when, when people think about, like, special operations, it, it unfortunately, people think, like, DA, 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 DA. But, you, you know, looking at, like, the past 20 years of GWAT and looking at how Green Berets have lived, you know, in, in the desert, out, totally outside of any sort of, of resupply, things like that, my deployments to Syria, our resupply was minimal. It was. We were living off the local economy. Yeah. Um, and that, that, you know, that brings it along a whole nother set of challenges and, in, in, you know, kind of survival and choosing goats that aren't going to kill you and things like that. But anyways, I mean, when you, when you were asked to sit in on that, um, was that just do, was that do just from your recent stint as an instructor on that side of the house or, or was that kind of a culmination of, looking at Sean Lenane and seeing, okay, this guy has a history and a background to kind of, you know, build up the WASTA to put his name on, on the committee that created this new uh, manual. Um, oh, I think it's just, I was lucky to be on the SEER committee at the time they were doing this. And, um, it's a quality bunch of people there because you got seasoned green berets. You're, you, you know, you've already spent uh, three, four or more years uh, on an operational attachment. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it was, it just, I just got lucky. I was there at that time. Um, and like I said, it was a team effort. They were going dot D was actually, you know, putting the copy into the manual, um, making up the drafts and everything, we would double read it. We'd correct it already. We were, we were going through the manual, correcting already things that didn't apply, testing everything, and then going back and saying, okay, there, here's the, uh, the flaw in this. And then they'd write it, and then we'd read it, and we'd say, yeah, that reads right. Or we'd say, no, that doesn't really read right. Uh, this is what it's got to look like. And it was a very good experience. Absolutely. How long did that process take? I'm just curious. Like, I, I've never been on the committee to write something like a survival manual. How? I mean, be, that back and forth between, you know, brass or the people that represent brass and the subject matter experts on on the uh, on the matter. A soup to nuts, probably about 18 months. I showed up during the last 12 months of it. Okay. It's a long time. It's a long time to create a doctrine. Um. Yeah. Yeah. You. You know. You can't rush quality no that's true especially something like that doctrine because like you said you know it, it's a world full of of wives tales and and old country boys with you know things that they you know their grandfathers taught them you know there's really you know there's really no hard science it's not like you know there's a science to battle drill one alpha there's a there's a science to conducting a raid or an ambush um not so much with survival. There's a lot. There's. I think it's more of a. It's more of an art, to be honest with you. Would I mean? Well, would you agree? Yeah, I would agree with you. It's it's an art uh, that incorporates scientific uh, processes. Uh, there's the key word survival in the beginning of the manual, which I think everybody should uh, memorize. You know, uh, to heart, size up the, the situation. Undue haste makes waste. Um, realize where you are. Uh, survival, uh, improvise, uh, value living, act like the natives and, uh, learn basic skills. Um, and then on top of that, uh, the survival kits class I found had great value because it's not just what are the categories of a of a survival kit, but once you know those categories, then you're thinking, what are your requirements for living And the categories are, Shelter, water, food, signaling, 
medicine, and then uh, tool or weapon or the means to uh, create a tool or a weapon. Now, if you think about that, uh, those are the requirements for, for life, for survival itself. Shelter, you have to have shelter. Without shelter of some form, uh, you can die within three hours. You know, water, three days without water. Water, the means to find it, the means to purify it, filter it, and or store it and transport it. Uh, food, two to three weeks, and then you're done. Um, that's the, the rule of threes. Then after that, signaling. You can be surviving, but if they can't find you, you're going to be surviving a long time or you're not going to make it. Um, medicine, primitive medicine, and we were learning how to use salt as a medicine, use ashes as a medicine, using the rinds on uh, uh, oranges and bananas as a, as a medicine. Um, we'd study primitive medicine that uh, POWs were using, particularly in those horrific camps that they had in World War II. Uh, River Kwai, you know, under the Japanese or in the, uh, the prisoner of war camps, uh, or rather the concentration camps in, uh, in Nazi Germany. Uh, what did people do to survive, uh, medically, uh, and, and in Vietnam, we had Dan Fitzer, uh, who'd spent three years in a tiger cage with Nick Rowe and, uh, he was explaining, uh, that process. And then of course, uh, improvised, uh, tools and weapons and, there you're just limited by your imagination. Now, later in my career, after I retired, I was working for state and for USAID, teaching this sort of thing. And they added another category, which was movement. You have to be able to navigate. Well, we take that for granted in our line of work. So that wasn't even taught in SEER. You come, that's a basic skill of the soldier. But civilians, uh, that's a whole eye opener. And I've taught uh, navigation um, under extreme constraints in, in uh, uh, locations where, you know, denied locations where you can't go outside of the compound. Well, how do you teach navigation then? Well, you start teaching celestial navigation, how to navigate by the sun and the stars, how to create a compass, how to create a clock, um, how to do a pace count, and uh, just basic use of a, of a compass. I, I, I had a compass course I set up one time on a golf course in Africa. And it worked um, and it got the message across uh, in any case. Uh, so those two aspects, there, keyword survival and the categories of a survival kit. You could write volumes just about that. And you could also stand up and teach your own survival course if you understood that, because right there is those the categories. No, I mean, absolutely agreed. I, I don't know if I would. Um but you're absolutely right. If you have if you have a, a, a solid foundation, you're right. Because I think you and I agree. It's 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 there's a lot of science in it. But overall, survival is an art. It it's it's not dictated by one thing or another. It's not dictated okay. by any sort of law. It's dictated by what works and what doesn't. I think we have a honestly. I think we have a unique opportunity here because. A lot of the listeners, they're military or they have an interest in military, things like that. Um, I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but we have, we do have a subject matter expert on hand with us. So, real quick, I'm, I'm giving, I'm putting you on the spot. Like I said, if you had to have a survival kit with six items, six, with using those, using those categories that you, that you developed like is this something that somebody can put together in their home and throw in their bug out bag something like that what does the subject matter expert recommend well remember a survival kit can be very large so first of all the container of my survival kit i'd like it to be like a diesel truck <laughs> that's fair that's fair okay but short of that okay something maybe i could carry either in a rucksack or in a pouch, um, shelter, some kind of shelter. Now those space blankets, that's better than nothing, but I'd rather have uh, a poncho liner or, um, one of those old field jacket liners. Like the, so, uh, like the smoker that, jacket. Pardon me? Like the old smoker jacket. Yeah. Okay. It's called the smoking jacket or the field jacket liner, which preceded that, which is made out of poncho liner material. Mm. Either or. Um, 
I, I've made this uh, survival kit for the wintertime, something I could just grab and run uh, a very small bug out bag, and it's in my truck. Okay, so I've got a poncho liner crammed in there and a field jacket liner crammed in there. Um, stuff to make fire, because fire is a form of shelter, but it's also signaling. So fire making kit, and it's got to be something that's going to keep going for a while, like a box of matches will only last as long as it's dry and as long as you have matches. So I'd rather have uh, one of my flint and steel uh, devices um, and, uh, and you know, basically a very small tinder box, i.e. a bunch of uh, uh, tinder in there to get that fire going uh, and or candles. Anyhow, fire making material. Uh, then on top of that, um, I'm going to need water and or a container and the container preferably one that I can boil water in to purify it if necessary um, food I know a Green Beret a, a close friend of mine and in his survival kit he has a bunch of Frito corn chips now that's his chow but it also is fuel for the tinder it, 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 it that's something nobody realizes Fritos and Doritos will light as tinder they burn like candles. Yes. It's incredible. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then, so uh, how many down am I? Uh, so there's food. I've got water. i got uh, fire. I've got fire. shelter. That's four. I'd need signaling. Uh, a signal mirror. The fire, of course, is a form of signaling. A signal mirror and or flares. Um, or even better, a radio. Or even better, a personal locator beacon. And look those up. Uh, they sell them at uh, REI. Uh, they sell them online. Uh, it's like a personal life insurance policy. And, you know, if you're going anywhere uh, in the wilderness here in North America or elsewhere, a personal locator beacon is a good investment. It's cheap insurance. You press that button. It goes up to the eye in the sky. It relays it to the nearest resources. And uh, if you're at sea, the nearest vessel comes by to rescue you. If you're on land, they start moving in your direction. It's a, only a one-way uh, communication, so you could have that. You could have a satellite phone. That's a very expensive way to go. Yeah. Uh, cell phones don't always work, especially the minute you uh, get out there in Mother Nature and you're away from the cell towers. Um, and or if you're overseas and you're in a denied area and they turn off all the cell phones, you know, for political reasons. So a personal locator beacon is the ultimate signaling device. Um, so that's five and then it'd be tool or weapon. Well, you know, you've got your, uh, green beret BFK, you know, your Conan, the barbarian short sword, just like Rambo carried, um, not a bad idea. Uh, very handy to have, uh, something like that. Um, and if you don't have that, a little knife, uh, a, a Leatherman, something as simple as that. Well, Leatherman's not simple. It's a toolbox in your pocket. And you can use that to make a bigger weapon. And we used to always say with weapons, what you're trying to make is something to dispatch small game. Um, not really to, you know, get into uh, a, a battle with the local forces like Rambo did. You know, Rambo was fiction after all. <laughs> <laughs> Good fiction. But, <laughs> but fiction nonetheless. Uh, um, but no, it's seriously, uh, that's, uh, that's what, those are the items I would carry along. I, I think that's I think that's a I, that's what I carry. Um, I need to invest in the in the personal locator beacon. I see them. I haven't really gone anywhere that that necessitates using it, but I'm trying trying to do a trip up to the Bob up in Montana next year, yeah. and uh, that would be a trip that you will, I think I'd want to invest one of the, you know in one of those because there is nothing up there. It's just a wilderness. So. Well, you know, you don't have to go that far to get into a misadventure. Um, I, I studied some cases of people, ordinary people, uh, who got into misadventures. One was a woman who, she was uh, about 65. This happened in about 10 years ago. And she used to hike up and down the uh, Appalachian Trail every year. She was very accustomed to it. They found her in a tent, practically mummified in her sleeping bag. She was done. And um, it's a very strange thing. She wandered off the trail because nature called and couldn't find the trail, which baffles me because if you had a compass, just go one direction for 
200 paces and then make a 180 and go back. But whatever it was, uh, I guess the will to survive left her that day. Uh, she wrote uh, a log, kept a log as she starved to death and she died. Um, and that's extraordinary. And the Appalachian Trail, it's wilderness, but it's not that far from civilization. Uh, and it's it's another, pretty it's pretty well traveled. I mean, exactly. People go up and down all the I mean, time. How, how far off the trail was she? Was she about two hundred meters? Oh man, that's wild. And there was another fellow. Um, he was actually a native Filipino uh, who was a U.S. citizen, uh, about in his seventies, and he was a hunter. And he was in Northern California. And I don't know if you know that terrain, but it's uh, very vertical, a lot of hills. And uh, he, uh, he, he took uh, a misstep and ended up going down uh, a very steep hill, uh, banged his head. And at the bottom, uh, when he came to, he was disoriented, uh, very disoriented. But he kept his wits about him. And he remembered his upbringing in the wilderness, uh, you know, in the, in the forests and jungles in the Philippines. And so he made shelters by pulling leaves on top of himself. And Northern California in the fall is it's pretty cool. It gets, it gets down there, but he survived and, um, he, he was, uh, doing everything right. Uh, he, he had access to water cause he was at the bottom of a hill, but he couldn't get his way out. He had a rifle with him with five rounds. And so he waited until he sensed that people were nearby because he knew somewhere around him was a highway that he'd fallen off when he sensed that somebody was nearby. And this was, uh, about 11 days into the problem, he started firing off rounds and they came to him and really? it was the people who were looking for him. So, um, you know, it can be, you don't have to be in absolute wilderness. You can be relatively close to, uh, to civilization and something like that happens. Um, there's the story of autumn Veach, young girl, 16 years old, uh, total couch potato, uh, a bit of a goth. And uh, she was uh, with her grandparents, uh, Pacific Northwest, up near Seattle, flying in a, uh, a Cessna aircraft, a uh, single-engine aircraft. Well, the inevitable happened. Uh, engine trouble, they went down. I don't know if you know the terrain up there, but it's rainforest, and they've got those giant redwood trees, like 25-foot diameter, uh, very vertical, very rocky, a lot of bracken, uh, heavy, you know, ground coverage, uh, this is real Bigfoot territory. Aircraft crashed in that. She was able to get out, but she couldn't free her grandparents who were stuck in there. And then the plane burst into flames. Uh, she watched them burn to death. And then uh, every piece of survival kit that existed went up in flames with them. But she kept her wits about her. She um, she traveled through the forest. She, she had a... Uh, a pastime. She used to watch TV with her father, uh, sit on the on the sofa and watch those survival uh, reality TV shows. Yeah. And she remembered one thing: if you're ever lost in the wilderness, find a body of water and follow it, because water leads to civilization. So she's freezing. She's uh, having a hard time. It's the Pacific Northwest. She's got a t-shirt, jeans, and her uh, Converse high tops, and she follows this body of water. And on the uh, third day, she finds a highway overpass and she crawls up there and she gets up on the highway and she's hitchhiking, you know, and nobody's stopping for her because she looks like something like the cat dragged in. So she hikes down the road about two miles and she ends up at a uh, convenience store. And there's two guys who are getting out of their uh, Prius or whatever, and they've got their rucksacks and they're getting ready to, you know, go experience the wilderness. And they go, what happened to you? And she tells them and they go inside and they you know, get her some, uh, chicken nuggets and, uh, and a, and a big gulp and, uh, get on the phone and call the, uh, authorities. And, uh, she thought her way out of that one. She used her wits, incredible will to survive 16 years old. I mean, that's, that's gotta be something innate though. I mean, like you said, like the, the 64 year old woman who just walked off the trail and just said, gave up, gave up, just curled up in her sleep system and said, you know, this is it. I, that, that you can't teach that or can you, I mean, can you teach a will to survive? Um, well, the first, uh, the first chapter in the, uh, air force, uh, air crew survival, um, 
manual. It, it involves the will to survive. And uh, we used to discuss it. And we used to also stress uh, things like you have to show a proper survival attitude. And we'd gig the students, you know, when they're out in the woods, if they were um, not trying hard enough or whatever, you know, okay, this is uh, not a proper survival attitude. And we're just really trying to get the point across, hey, you've got to win this game. And, uh, and if you think you can win it, your chances have just increased exponentially. If you quit and give up, you won't make it. I mean, that's... You'd think that would be a universal truth. You would. I mean, you're, you're out there, you're alone, you have to, you want to get out, but I guess it's just, you have it or you don't. I mean, I, I didn't think you would, ha me, I didn't think you'd have to teach an air crew. Like, if an air, air crew shot down and they're, they're now in a survival situation, that you'd have to teach them the mindset to get out. Like, I, I would have thought that was innate, you know, through tens of thousands of years of evolution you know in in the human race that that would just be deep deep inside and once you're in a situation like that it would just i don't know your your unconscious thoughts would dig into and draw upon that instinct that's not the case we live so far attached from nature because think of um even just a couple of generations ago our grandparents and great-grandparents didn't have electricity, didn't have running water. And if they wanted a chicken dinner, they had to raise the chickens, they had to kill the chickens, uh, clean the chicken, and prepare the chicken. And the oil that they fried the chicken in, that came from other sources all around them. And uh, they could only have a chicken maybe once a week if they were very fortunate chicken was a luxury food. There weren't chicken factory farms in those days. Um, and, you know, if they wanted, if they had a medical problem, nine times out of 10, or maybe 99 times out of 100, they took care of it themselves because medical facilities were sparse and they weren't very capable. Um, and people died from diseases all the time. They saw this. People died in their teens, people died in their 20s, people died of old age in their 40s and 50s. And people were accustomed to this, they saw this, so they knew life was hard and this is what you have to do to make it. Just the start point, every day you want water, you pump it by hand or you bring it up from the stream. And that's the start point. And we've gotten away from that, everything is in our laps. And suddenly it's all taken away. Uh, it's very easy to become depressed. Uh, it's very easy to become uh, anxious, uh, to panic, uh, uh, to feel uh, just, you know, uh, a sense of loss or betrayal. And uh, that, that's what people need to be aware of to, uh, to remind themselves if they're in you know, a worst case scenario, the will to survive. Interesting. Now, because like I said, I, I preface this. I said, listen, I was, I was a prep school kid. I didn't grow up in the woods. Um, the, the SEER instructors did a, a really good job of getting me up to speed on how not to die in a survival yeah. situation. So it, with all those things, because you're absolutely right. You know, like you said, chicken dinner used to be a luxury. You had to go out and do the work. You had to raise the chicken. You had to cook, you know, kill the chicken, clean it, cook yeah. it, whatever. Now I can walk down to the the local supermarket pick up a pack of chicken pick up a bottle of oil pick up some breadcrumbs fried up for like seven bucks and it takes me 30 minutes yeah so with that with just the way we live today because you can't get away from that we we can't move beyond that life is just going to keep on getting easier and easier for for each additional generation unless something catastrophic happens but if we keep following this track and outside of people like going to seer school, things like that, I mean, how how do they how do they teach themselves these things? Because not all of us had the have the the benefit of going to a world class school staffed by world class instructors teaching world class curriculum. 
to make sure that all the money that the United States government invested in you to train you to, you know, you know, wage unconventional warfare or any of the other core SF missions, that they don't want you dying in a survival situation. Most people don't have access to that. So how do you have anything to recommend, you know, the layman or the person sitting out there saying, yeah, I would like to learn a little more. I mean, how do they do that? Well, the constraints are time and money because, um, you know, SEER school is 19 days and uh, it's the better part of two weeks and uh, a four day uh, field problem um, on the survival side before something very bad happens and you go to that place that we don't like to talk about too much. <laughs> um, and then you learn the other type of survival. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, you know, to replicate that and sell it to uh, the layman, uh, how much would that cost per capita? And it's it's a lot of money. It's a ton. I'd yeah. ima- I would imagine it's thousands, thousands of dollars. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it's, uh, it's as much, if not more, as a semester of college. You know, the average college uh, course is, what, 40 hours? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Well, you went through SEER school, it was 19 days. So that's uh, something like 60 hours? Yeah. Well, and actually, they're 24-hour days. But, but uh, in, in any case, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to deliver. I like teaching bushcraft. Um, and I've put together all kinds of courses. And... Uh, People just don't want to dedicate the time and money, which um, really surprises me. Uh, and there's only so much you can teach. I can teach. Uh, the shortest course I've taught is five days. It's four days of classroom and uh, a little field day. And um, that was sponsored by the State Department. And okay. it was their own people going through it. Uh, civilians to replicate that for them to pay that that would be a lot of money so i could shorten it down to uh a weekend not a great deal i can cover there i would cover keyword survival will to survive and uh survival uh kits uh the uh the categories and then of those categories i would cover um you know one technique of each one and uh, again i find it really hard to sell the only time it's worked is when it's tied into some kind of product, uh, you know, a bigger product or a program. That's fascinating. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, that, I, I don't know. I would have thought that that would be something in demand. You got, and there's, I'm sure there's plenty of millionaires that like climbing Kilimanjaro or K2 if they're really good and would benefit off of that. But that's, that's shocking to me, honestly. I went to REI and I presented to them basically what we talked about here. And they went away and they came back and they said, well, we've already got people to teach this. We've got, you know, <laughs> something like this already. We don't need what you've got. And I'm thinking, there's no way you've got <laughs> somebody, the background and experience and, and, you know, the people that I've worked with, you know, there's just no way. Listen, I love, I love REI. I like the people that work at REI. I like the whole concept of REI. Um, I don't know if I want to learn survival from a granola muncher. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I get you, seriously, like you said, you made the little the little quip about the priest, but that's that's what it is. You know, you hate to say weekend warrior because, well, now I am a weekend warrior in the army. But yeah, some of these guys, you know, they. They munch on granola. They're they're vegetarians in their day to day life. They come in and they say, "Oh yeah, I like rock climbing or I like hiking and things like that." And oh, I might know a little bit about gathering some clean water or dropping some iodine tablets in into a canteen. And hey, tea for trained. That's yeah. not the case. You like seriously, like survival, like a, a no shit survival situation is a no holds bar, knock them down, beat them out death match between you and nature that's what it is like you have to get me you have to that will to survive it's kind of a nastiness like am i going to kill this cute little family of rabbits so that i can eat for the next three days yeah. I, I i like that the knockdown, drag out battle between you and uh nature 
I, I'm gonna borrow that phrase. Go ahead, it's yours. Yeah. It's yours. You even made it better. I couldn't. I couldn't remember the knock down, drag out part. I just did the full out brawl. But yeah, take it. It's yeah. yours. But that's what it is. And that it, it, that just it shocks me because you would you think it's out there. And and honestly, to anybody listening, you know, if you if you had the opportunity to learn a little bit of survival, just even something simple like what what Sean said with putting together a survival kit and you learning how to use the tools um in it or just learning a little primitive medicine like you'd be surprised what you can accomplish with like a few packs of salt a few packs of sugar and yeah. some and like some sterile water like it's it's pretty incredible um so you know th- those kind of skills uh definitely important definitely not something you can learn at your rei even during their weekend uh they do those. They they do like conferences where they teach you all sorts of things. Like it's not, it's not going to be the same level. But so real quick, I don't want to keep you much longer. But I, you know, your career is so fascinating, especially in the realm of of this whole survival expertise. Because yeah, you you were a team, I, and that's it's hard to it's hard to, to remember that despite all this incredible you know breadth of knowledge that you have with expertise, you were a team guy. You were an ODA guy. You were uh, a Charlie, you were a Fox, and then you were an E7 Zulu, correct? Yeah. And disgruntled it, E7. <laughs> disgruntled E7. It just <laughs> never came. So you're first of the first, first of the third, first of the tenth. So you were in Okinawa, Bragg, and then uh, Germany. Yeah. And that's also, that's something, like, I like talking to, I like talking to Green Berets who came before me because of little anecdotes like this, like, Jumping from from group to group is something that does not happen anymore. Um, outside of like if you do what I did and go active duty to guard or guard to active duty, like once once you go to group, like you're you're in fifth group, you go to Swift, you go back to fifth group. Like that's just the way it is. Um, but you had a really unique experience and a, a wide breadth of of uh, deployment experience because of that. I mean that's that's unique even in the SF world. Well, um, third group was stood up out of all the other groups. And so you met people from all the other groups. Um, and also, you know, Bragg is the big, uh, the big magnet. It's the flagpole. Guys come back from their first group assignment and they're working in SWIC. And a lot of them ended up in third group. Uh, some of them in seventh group. At that time, seventh group was still a Bragg. Um, so that wasn't that unusual, you know, because for whatever reason, people wanted to homestead and I never thought I'd homestead, but then my parents, uh, they retired in North Carolina and, you know, I realized I'd better be with them now. I wouldn't be with them again. And so I homesteaded and that was, it worked for me. And, uh, during the course of that time, I got a lot of experience in Africa and the Middle East and also in Eastern Europe because the Bosnia thing kicked off and, mm. That's a that's subject for a whole other conversation. Um, and then while I was there, uh, you know, I'd had enough of it. You know, I mean, third group is it was punishing unit. It's punishing now. It was it was punishing then. Um, you're too close to the flagpole, and uh, resources were scarce. It wasn't a nice overseas assignment. So then, uh, put in for first of the tenth, and I got it. And uh, went over there, and I'm glad I did that. Uh, it was a foreign environment for me, uh, working in Europe, but it served me later. Um, and uh, it was my languages that got me around, um, uh, particularly, you know, French. You know, when I was trying to get into uh, to 10th group, they said, well, you know, I was talking to Branch, and they said, well, what language do you speak? I said, well, I speak French, you know. Well, that's not a European language. Well, they're right. In Special Forces, that's an African language. Yeah. But guess what? First of the tenth does a lot of work in Africa. Because every year it's coup d'état season, and down we gotta go. <laughs> it's, it's good. That's good. I like that. You know what? I'm stealing that one. It's coup d'état season. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's fantastic. And and you know what? we will have you back on for sure because we we definitely went into the survival thing. Because it is unique, it's kind of it was it was an opportunity to kind of branch off a little bit with with the the typical interviews I do on here, but we're definitely going to have you back to talk about your actual deployments because a you know twenty year career in SF, 
I mean, your stories are, you know, they're going to be top notch. You know, even even a, a, a idiot one pump active duty chump like me, and then he runs off to the guard, still has stories, even just for you oh, know yeah. three years at at group. Oh you, yeah, you, like twenty years at group. Like holy god. So we will. We'll, we'll we're going to have you back on and talk about those stories because. Something tells me coup d'etat season isn't just a funny one-liner. There's got to be there's, there's got to be something more to that than just hey, here's a here here's something I came up with to describe an entire continent. No, like hey, I I got the stories to back that up. Um. Oh, oh yeah. Well, Africa is uh, it's it's definitely uh uh. It's a special forces uh, uh, wonderland, that's for sure, because there's never you'll never die of boredom in Africa. Man, God, you know what? I better. I, I'm gonna listen. I'm gonna call my third group buddies who tell me how bored they are in Africa and let them know that Shalanen just says, "Hey, that's not true. You're just not taking advantage fully of the opportunity." You'll you'll see stuff there which will amaze you like driving down the highway they do have highways there driving down the highway and they're right in the middle of the highway is a truck stop and a guy underneath it changing out his transmission (laughs) (laughs) by hand because he's got nothing else to go with (laughs) oh man it's a workout too that's all he's he's getting his reps in and, and and getting the work done but Sean, I can't thank you enough. I'm not going to keep you. It's it's late. Um, it was a long time coming getting you on here because we were having yeah. some serious technical difficulties. So I'm so glad it worked out. Now knowing that it that we can get it to work, we'll have you back on. But I want I really want to thank you for for sharing your your insight into the whole survival thing because, like I said, even for those that listen, they're not in the military and they kind of just enjoy it or, you know, they're, they're prepping for the boogaloo or they just like, you know, LARPing it out in the woods. You know, it, it, the, the sexy stuff, the, the shooting, the running, the gunning, that's all great. But things like medicine, survival, things like that, they take the backseat because they're just, they're just not sexy to the masses, even though they should be. I like, like, like survival stuff. That's really cool. But um, so I'm I'm really glad you're able to come on and give a little bit of insight. So I can't thank you enough for that. Always a pleasure. So Sean, uh, we'll we'll keep going with this. We'll we'll continue this conversation uh, in the next couple of weeks as as your schedule dictates. Because I definitely want to hear some of these Africa stories for <laughs> sure. Because I'm sure there's a million of them. Um, so thank you so much. Guys, if you're listening, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please, I, I always forget to say this, so Deadplay, big shout out to my buddy Deadplay on Twitter for reminding me. Uh, if, if you're watching this on YouTube, like, comment, subscribe. It helps with the algorithm to get this pushed out so more people can get this uh, top-notch knowledge. If you're listening on Spotify, iTunes, please give a uh, five-star review if you think it's worthy of a five-star review. If it's a three-star review because, listen, the OKest Green Beret just gave a OKest podcast appearance, so be it. Uh, but your review definitely does help. So, guys, thank you so much. And, Sean, thank you. Uga Shaka. Uga Shaka. Shaka Zulu. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. See you later. <laughs>